Welcome to the Daily Journal podcast for November 1st, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile. The U.S. Supreme Court will soon return for its third week of argument in its new term, and we are back with the third and fourth installments of our preview of October term 2019. Today's episode is our third in that preview series and considers three major criminal law cases the court will decide over the next several months. With this trio of appeals, the justices will determine the fate of the insanity defense in criminal prosecutions, where the defendants must pursuant to the Sixth Amendment, be convicted by a unanimous jury of their peers, and what exactly the current SCOTUS law is as to life sentences for juvenile offenders. We have to bring you viewpoints from six different attorneys involved in the three cases we'll discuss. Most are Amici in the appeals, but we'll also hear from one attorney who presented arguments before the High Court justices in October, as Louisiana Solicitor General Elizabeth Murrell. The first case we'll regard involves the affirmative defense of insanity, which doesn't deny a defendant committed the criminal act of which he or she is accused, but instead the defendant was not of sound mind when it happened, was unaware of his or her actions, was unable to control them, or did not realize they were wrong, perhaps. Most all states provide for this defense, but Kansas recently legislated it out of its criminal code. And in Caller versus Kansas, the Supreme Court will decide whether the Constitution allows that or whether principles of due process and cruel and unusual punishment mandate that a potential insanity defense always be available. The facts underlying the appeal are unsurprisingly quite gruesome. James Collar killed his estranged wife, two teenage daughters, and former mother-in-law. He did spare his young son that fate, suggesting some degree of deliberation. The jury sentenced him to death. On appeal, Collar contends his sentence was constitutionally infirm because he had been prevented from presenting an affirmative insanity defense. Kansas, in opposition, argues its scheme provided Collar and provides all defendants of potentially unsound mind enough of a chance to escape criminal liability they don't deserve. Namely, Kansas says defendants like Collar can present mental disorder evidence at an earlier stage of trial to show they lacked the sufficiently culpable mental state, the mens rea, that merits conviction required by a particular crime. About this case, we'll speak with competing Amici, the former dean and current professor of law at Golden Gate University, Rachel Van Cleve, and on the other side, Gibson Dunn and Crutcher's Brad Hubbard. The second case we'll consider asks whether criminal defendants must be convicted by a unanimous jury or whether, like in the case of Evangelisto Ramos, a 10-2 to 2 vote is sufficient, in his case, rendered by a Louisiana jury as to the charge of second-degree murder. To discuss this Ramos appeal, we'll chat with Louisiana's Solicitor General Elizabeth Merle and with Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law Professor Michael Sachs, an amicus in the matter. Finally, Consider the case of Mathena v. Malvo regarding the infamous D.C. sniper killings of the early 2000s, where Lee Boyd Malvo, then 17, and an older associate, 41-year-old John Allen Muhammad, committed a spree of killings over several months. Muhammad has been executed for the crimes. Malvo received a life without parole sentence, but that sentence came before recent SCOTUS case law that restricts when and how juveniles can be given life sentences. So the high court will now consider whether Malvo is entitled, based on those recent decisions, to a new sentencing hearing. As to this case, we'll speak with another pair of Amici, Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher, and with John Mills, a principal attorney with Phillips Black in Oakland. But before all that, let me first remind you that this podcast is a great source for California continuing legal education credits. If you'd like to receive one hour of participatory CLE credit for having tuned into the show, just go to dailyjournal.com, find this podcast, take a short true-false test, and claim your credit. Okay, Rachel Von Cleve is the former dean and current professor of law at Golden Gate University School of Law. She joined an amicus brief arguing that Kansas and a handful of other states that have abolished an affirmative insanity defense are violating the Constitution. She says there are many instances where defendants may have formed the requisite mens rea to commit a crime, but nonetheless are mentally disordered in the sort of way that the insanity defense has long been intended to protect. She joins me now. Professor, thanks for being on the show. 
You're welcome. Okay, so your uh, amicus brief that you signed on to with criminal law and mental health law professors, it sort of leads with an introduction on the long heritage and universality of the insanity defense, or at least near universality of the insanity defense in, in common law and in U.S. criminal law traditions. Uh, tell me a bit more about that uh, that bit of uh, background context uh, the brief provides. Yeah. So the Kaler's brief also starts with a long introduction of the history. And um, a lot of that is, I think, important information for the court to have. Um, but then it also ties directly to the two constitutional claims in terms of due process and um, how fundamental an insanity defense is. And this language that the court has often used in analyzing the due process clause of the 14th Amendment of whether something is a right that's asserted is implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And so um, in order to uh, sort of give some meaning to what the significance of an insanity defense is, um, all of that history, both in the U.S. as well as common law, as well as even further back, is important in establishing um, that the ability of somebody charged with a crime to bring forward evidence of their insanity as a defense really is part of the definition of due process and sort of fundamental fairness. It also ties into the Eighth Amendment claim in terms of, as you mentioned, near universality. Kansas and three other states in the U.S. are the only jurisdictions to um, essentially abolish the insanity defense. And in terms of the part of the Eighth Amendment that talks about cruel or unusual punishment, it is unusual. These four jurisdictions compared to all of the other states, the District of Columbia, the military, and the federal um, government, uh, in terms of um, those four jurisdictions not having this type of defense, while all of the others do allow some form of an insanity defense. So that history is tied to both of those constitutional claims. Kansas is... Saying it's not saying that uh, by abolishing the affirmative insanity defense that it intends to uh, incarcerate clinically insane, genu- genuinely mentally disordered defendants. Um, you know, it sort of is saying it, it agrees with those notions that due process and sort of underlying Eighth Amendment principles make it so uh, those sorts of folks, you know, should not be criminally found culpable. But it's just saying that genuinely mentally disordered defendants will be in a position where the government won't be able to prove the mental state um, element of of crimes they're being charged with, the mens rea element. So the dispute here really centers around whether that's sort of sufficient of a protection for those sorts of defendants in your brief. And the briefs right on your side say that is not sufficient. I suppose what's the main argument on, on that score? Yeah, so I think the main argument is that um, merely looking at this from a mens rea or the ability of the defendant to challenge or cast reasonable doubt on the mens rea required for the offense um, isn't sufficient. And Justice Breyer raised this contrast, both in oral argument as well as in a dissent um, from a denial of certiorari in a prior similar case. Um, his, his example was if you have one um, defendant who believes that they are killing a dog because of their mental disease or mental illness, when in fact they're killing a human being, then they lack the mens rea, which is the intent to kill a human being. By contrast, if you have somebody who kills a person, uh, Justice Breyer's example was because uh, the person, due to their mental illness, believes that the dog is telling um, them or compelling this person to kill, they're 
there's an intent to kill a human being, but there's the person with suffering from this mental illness believing that a dog or superpower or whatever has compelled them to do it would not be disproving mens rea and wouldn't really have any other hook on which to sort of present this uh, defense of insanity to show a lack of moral culpability, even where each technically element of the offense, including mens rea, is uh, established. That pair of hypos illustrates that mm-hmm. there's a class of mentally disordered defendants that that would, as Kansas suggests, you know, not be able to have the mens rea found against them. But but the class of genuinely mentally disordered defendants is just broader than the folks that would uh, be protected by the the mens rea rule. Is that fair to say? Yes, and I mean a couple of other examples. The briefs talk extensively about the McNaughton test from from England, and you know that's another example where. Uh, the defendant claimed that due to his insanity, he believed that the Tory party was persecuting him and he had to kill the prime minister uh, to end this threat. So he had the intent to kill the prime minister, but it was based on his insanity led him to believe that he had to do it. Um, a more recent example out of Texas that's also cited in uh, the amicus brief that I signed on to um, involved the case of Andrea Yates who was the mother of five, um, who knew she was killing her children, intended to kill her children. There was lots of evidence that she had planned this out. But the the basis for her on retrial um, of not guilty by reason of insanity was that due to her mental illness, she believed that if she did not kill them, they would be tortured in hell. You know, truly tragic situation, just like the facts of the present case um, that's before the court. But you're absolutely right. Kansas's approach would exclude someone like Andrea Yates from presenting her mental illness as a defense to the charges because it would not um, disprove or cast reasonable doubt on the mens rea element. There are a couple of other places where Kansas and, and uh, some arguments from the opposing briefs say there are other uh, potential al- alternatives as opposed to just um, thinking about the mens rea piece here that in a a case like the ones that you just mentioned, that the court could take that into consideration at at sentencing. Also, um, my previous guest that listeners have just heard from, Brad Hubbard, who signed on to an opposing brief here, suggested that the defense of duress might come into play if a defendant is saying he or she really felt compelled by voices to, say, take someone's mm-hmm. life. Um, what are your thoughts on those ideas and, and why they might not be sufficient? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, um, and I apologize, I have not read that amicus brief, but, you know, I think the notion of insanity, sort of going back to what we started with in terms of the history, both in this country and under the common law, that's uh, a little bit different than duress. Duress is, doesn't include sort of an inability to appreciate what someone's doing. Whereas in insanity defense or certain forms of mental illness include this notion that someone is simply unable to appreciate, to be able to tell the difference from right or wrong and appreciate that what they're doing is wrong or morally culpable. I mean, I guess somebody who's acting under duress similarly could be argued lacks sort of moral culpability, but certainly has the ability to appreciate right from wrong. So I think that duress wouldn't capture that uh, aspect of some of the mental illnesses that are likewise 
not included in um, the mens rea approach in Kansas. And and what about the the idea that it, at sentencing considerations of a mental disorder could could be taken into account, and and that serve the sort of due process and other constitutional concerns we've, we've spoken about? Yeah, um, and I was able to read, sort of skim the transcript from the oral, oral argument yesterday where uh, that came up somewhat. And, and so there are, there are a couple things that the uh, attorney for the defendant here brought up in terms of the, the notion of an acquittal by reason of insanity takes away sort of the stigma of a criminal conviction. So taking, taking any mental illness into account upon um, sentencing would still impose the stigma of a criminal conviction. Also, as to the facts here, he was convicted of capital murder and then sentenced to death. The other thing that uh, the attorney brought out in oral argument is that once the jury has convicted, when the same jury then comes back in the sentencing phase to decide whether or not to impose the death penalty, even where there was some evidence of mental illness presented at trial, it is very unlikely that that's going to weigh very heavily with them on the sentencing phase, any evidence of mental illness at that point. So I think there are a couple things, right? The stigma that goes with the criminal conviction that is that does not attach in the same way to a not guilty by reason of insanity, and also the sort of where the jury has already convicted um, in the trial phase, it's unlikely that the mental illness is going to have much sway with them on the sentencing phase. And that, again, that's not addressed by the Kansas approach either. Um, I wanted to pull uh, one more piece out from, from your, your amicus brief, that being a, a study of this similar process that was put in place in, in Montana. You mentioned only a few states yeah. have sort of gone about using the, the mens rea uh, approach to, to factor in ideas of mental disorder. And um, your brief describes the result there was um, trials getting hung up earlier on with more defendants being declared incompetent to stand trial. Um, I suppose for folks that, you know, aren't, you know, don't spend a ton of time researching criminal procedure and criminal law, that result sounds a little bit similar to someone being found uh, later on in the trial with a defense uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. What's the problem with the result of Montana's approach with having more folks declared uh, unfit for trial? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question and sort of um, may well be, I'm guessing, sort of an un- unintended consequence um, from adopting a mens rea approach. I mean, the, the competency to stand trial sort of generally is just whether someone is in a position to be able to assist with their defense and sort of understanding the charges against them and able to um, assist in, in their defense. And where some of these cases with people with um, mental illness, where perhaps the mens rea approach, similar to what's being argued here, doesn't really take into account or, or sort of keeps out of just challenging the mens rea, this notion of finding somebody incompetent in trial leaves them and, you know, victims' family members or survivors, et cetera, Sort of in a state of limbo as to um, what's going to happen with the the charges against the defendant because such people could still be detained and then periodically maybe receive some treatment. The idea is that they should be receiving some treatment and then be periodically reviewed to determine whether or not they uh, have become competent um, to stand trial. Uh, so it seems like that would lead to sort of multiple competency hearings and leave everybody 
kind of in a state of limbo as to what what's going to be happening with this defendant, either a criminal conviction and sentence or, you know, in a different state, um, not guilty or, yeah, not guilty by reason of insanity and then likely um, institutionalized for, for treatment for the mental illness. One other theme that came out in the arguments and was mentioned by the Chief Justice and, and Justice Samuel Alito is that the defendant here, um, Collar, is potentially not the best representative um, to to maybe have this case be brought and considered by the court because those justices thought even if they said, okay, um, an affirmative insanity defense is required by the Constitution, Collar might not actually qualify for it because um, they asserted um, perhaps he seemed quite troubled but wouldn't meet the clinical definition of, of insane perhaps. Um, you know, I don't know whether you have thoughts as to whether or not the defendant would in fact qualify, but just do you have thoughts as to how that factors in to the case? Because it, it does seem like it might be a close call um, whether or not it, it would actually apply to, to this defendant. And it also seems to sort of weave into, I guess, um, some other themes from your brief that um, lurking beneath the surface of some of these legal arguments is a worry that insanity claims might be brought sort of in potentially in bad faith or that it's maybe hard to say exactly whether someone does uh, suffer from a mental disorder that uh, renders them not worthy of criminal culpability. And so the defense could lead to sort of arbitrary results in different contexts. Um, not sort of a, a broad question, but thoughts on that? Mm. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting that that was raised in oral argument. And it does come out toward the end of um, the state's brief as well, particularly in the state's brief, really looking at this, the facts indicating that he planned it, he drove there, he waited, he walked there, you know, all these uh, indicate how he sort of methodically went from room to room to kill um, um, his estranged wife, his daughters, and the grandmother of his estranged wife. Uh, however, that's very similar to Andrea Yates in terms of how she planned. She waited until her husband left. She, uh, you know, uh, had the dog um, somewhere else so that the dog couldn't see, find out what was going on or get in the way of um, what she had planned to do. And so uh, I, I can't imagine that many cases that would challenge um, this approach to dealing with mental illness um, are necessarily great cases for it. I think it is speculative for the court to decide on the record that's before it on appeal whether or not he would have prevailed on any other, uh, any definition of the insanity defense that 48 other jurisdictions in the United States use. Certainly he did, he was allowed to present expert evidence about his mental illness, but again, where it didn't counter the evidence that the state had of intent to kill a person, um, you know, it's sort of without context, without any sort of framework for the jury to to evaluate it. So I think it would be, yes, a close call, but still speculative as to um, what a jury would do if the defendant had the benefit of an insanity defense that along the lines of any of the of the 48 States. And so now I forgot the second part to your question. Oh, I mean, I guess just the underlying suggestion that um, mm. the, the defense could be uh, abused, perhaps. Yeah, and I, I heard that in the oral argument as well. And um, I don't think that there were necessarily statistics, although I think uh, his attorney was arguing just a super small percentage of people who even raised the defense. And uh, again, without having sort of 
statistics in front of me, but the fact that 48 other jurisdictions don't seem to have significant issues with having some form of an insanity defense leads me to believe that, you know, while that might happen, you know, it can't be that significant or that much more significant than claims of many other defenses, um, whether it's self-defense, whether it's duress, uh, or other or other types of defenses. Then just uh, one last one. You've spoken about the, the vast majority of jurisdictions that do have this affirmative insanity defense, but there's a variety of, of different versions of it. And so one suggestion also that came up with argument was that if the court agrees that some sort of defense is required by the Constitution, um, does that get it into the problem of deciding, I guess, what the right defense is? Um, I suppose it, the court could say that uh, some defense is mandated, but um, so long as it met some minimum requirements it laid out, that the states could still all be free to have their own versions of it. Is, does that present a problem in your mind? Again, I don't think so, because there are examples from all of these other jurisdictions and, you know, in other contexts, so where the court has considered this notion of culpability for the purpose of implementing the death penalty and have found has found that it violates the Eighth Amendment to impose the death penalty on people with intellectually disabled or the insane or minors. I mean, minors, it's a bright line in terms of juveniles. But in each of those other situations where the court has found uh, an Eighth Amendment violation in the context of applying the death penalty, they haven't set out any sort of hard and fast definition and have left some, um, you know, sort of a range of, uh, of how states might define intellectual disability or, or other concerns in, in assessing somebody's moral culpability to justify the death penalty. Uh, well, we'll wait and see if, uh, later this term how this case comes out, but we'll leave it there for now. Professor Rachel Van Cleve from Golden Gate University School of Law, thanks very much for being on our podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. Brad Hubbard filed an amicus brief supporting Kansas's approach to essentially fold the insanity defense into the mens rea element of a crime. He's a litigation associate with Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher and joins me now. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. The core argument in your amicus brief here um, and, and the point over which most of the disagreement in this appeal seems to, uh, to orbit is that the idea that the way this case has sort of been described and interpreted by folks following the new Supreme Court term that Kansas has abolished the uh, insanity defense is a bit of a misnomer. Um, I guess tell me what you mean by that and sort of spool out that idea for me a little bit further. That's correct. So although Kansas has repealed what is commonly called the insanity defense, a defendant in Kansas may still present evidence of a mental disease or defect to disprove the prosecution's argument that he or she possessed the required mens rea or mental state. To put it another way, borrowing from the Supreme Court's opinion in Clark against Arizona, Kansas, like a number of other states that recognize an affirmative insanity defense, allows consideration of evidence of mental illness directly on the elements of mens rea that defines the offense. One thing that I'm, I'm trying to get a, a firm grasp on here is, I guess, just how, when it's described that way, you're, you know, fleshing out what exactly the affirmative defense 
of insanity means and what the mens rea, the sort of culpable mental state means. Those are those are discrete concepts. Of course, you know, one being uh, affirmative defense brought by the defendant, the other an element of the crime that the government must prove. So those are discrete concepts. So, I mean, the argument's not that everything that's involved with a affirmative insanity defense can get sort of shunted in to the mens rea part of the case? Or, or is that the argument that every consideration that might have gone on at the insanity defense stage, now you just sort of shift that over and say, well, we're going to look at that through the lens of, of mens rea? So let me sort of take uh, that the answer to this question in two parts. First, uh, the reason why we described abolishing the insanity defense as a misnomer is because that makes it sound like in Kansas, uh, insanity is no longer relevant to whether a criminal defendant can be convicted of a crime. And that's just simply not the case. As you mentioned, it is no longer an affirmative defense. So defendant no longer bears the burden of proving uh, that he is or she is insane. Um, instead, they can present that similar, same or similar evidence uh, to rebut the state's uh, the state's burden to to prove that the defendant acted with mens rea. If we could drill down just a little bit more on what it means for the government to 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 demonstrate that a defendant did have the required mens rea, is the right way to think about that that the, the defendant intended to commit the act that he or she did then commit? Is it to think about it as a, a culpable state of mind? I guess, what's the best way to d- describe what the government's trying to show when it's trying to show the defendant had the, the mens rea? So there are different mens reas for different crimes, right? So we move from negligence all the way to acting with affirmative uh, intent to bring about a given result. And so in, in this context, I, I believe the sort of capital murder requires that the defendant acted with the intent to kill another person. And so you have to, so the, the government would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant intended to kill uh, his or her victim. And now here is where it seems that the, the opposing briefs present a, a problem that, that the conception you're putting forth maybe wouldn't be able to solve, that you could have a defendant say, that's clinically insane, clearly mentally disordered, that could still form an intent to commit a certain act, like to to kill someone. There are uh, examples brought up in several of the opposing briefs. I think um, the namesake for one of the insanity defenses, Daniel McNaughton, had certain delusions um, suggesting to him that he was uh, under threat by uh, Tory members of parliament in 19th century England. And so he conceived the intent to kill the the prime minister there. Um, There's just examples cited where someone who's, you know, not of right mind could still form a a clear intent. And that person would, it sounds like, um, or it is argued, would still be found guilty under Kansas's law. How how do you resolve that that problem if you see it that way? Well, so that is generally true, but... uh in an example where somebody was delusional and believed that they had to kill somebody else to preserve their own life or to preserve the life of others, uh, there still exists the uh, the defense of duress and there still uh, exists the defense of, uh, of self-defense. And so the, the mental illness question uh, and, and where Kansas has moved it, that is two men's rate, does not impact Either of those two, uh, either of those two affirmative defenses. 
just to flesh that out just a little bit more. So in that, an example where someone thinks it's necessary to kill based on delusions in Kansas is the, the place in the trial where that might come up, uh, the mens rea stage, or are you saying that one of those other um, defenses like duress would be at play there? So I think uh, that that would come up in one of those other defenses unless that the delusions, uh, the defendant was under the impression that he was not killing a person. That is, that they did not have uh, the mens rea to commit capital murder. One other thought I had about uh, the way that the um, different conceptions here sort of play out, uh, and this is re- referenced in a couple of the uh, opposing briefs as well, is that interestingly that uh, approaching, say, a capital murder case where the crime is, is committed by someone whose mental disorder makes it uh, so they would say before Kansas changed the law have a, an affirmative defense. Um, now that person, whereas before they might have been civilly committed uh, after the trial, if they were deemed to have shown their insanity defense. Now if they prove that that disorder prevented them from sort of forming the mens rea, that leads to acquittal, which I guess sort of brings up a a different potential policy question as opposed to the outcomes that those different regimes lead to. You thought at all about uh, those ideas? Yeah, so I think I can answer this again in sort of two or or three parts. To begin, in Kansas, if one of the questions on uh, the jury charge is if the jury finds the defendant not guilty, whether that determination was because uh, mental disease or defect precluded the defendant from having the necessary mens rea. In that event, if the defendant is then convicted of a lesser included offense, uh, actually the defendant will then go through the uh, criminal commitment procedures. And and I don't think there is anything, again, I'm not positive how it works in Kansas, but I would imagine that the state could also move to uh, civilly commit somebody who, who... had killed somebody, even if uh, they were found not guilty uh, criminal. Um, and then just a, a couple to wrap up in terms of the the arguments that have been given now before the Supreme Court um, on on Monday. It seemed like there was definitely some concerns by the justices that were voiced to to, to both sides of of this case. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh did mention um, sort of that this framing that that your brief takes that. Um, it's just wrong to say that this is Kansas abolishing the insanity defense when it can be folded into other pieces of criminal procedure. Um, so I imagine you might have thought uh, that he might be leaning towards um, uh, an outcome suggested in in your briefing. Right. No, I, I think that's right. And, and one of the things that the justices uh, were aware of is that the petitioner frames this as being um, there are 46 states that have an affirmative defense, an affirmative insanity defense, and there are four four outliers that don't. But if you look at the Supreme Court's opinion in Clark against Arizona, it explains that the picture is actually far more complicated than that. Um, so there are four traditional approaches to insanity, cognitive incapacity, and moral incapacity. And those two combined make up the McNaughton test. Uh, and so the, there are 17 states in the federal government that have adopted some version of that. Um, one state, Alaska, has adopted just the cognitive incapacity test. And 10 other states have adopted just the moral incapacity test. There are three states, 
that combine the full McNaughton test, that is cognitive incapacity or moral incapacity, uh, with the uh, volitional incapacity test. And that's the irresistible impulse test, which asks whether a person was so lacking in volition due to mental illness that he could not have controlled his actions. There are 14 jurisdictions and the model penal code that have in place uh, some combination of volitional incapacity and some variant of moral incapacity. Then finally, uh, there's the product of mental illness test, which asks whether a person's action was the product of mental illness. And uh, New Hampshire has that as its test. And so to, to give the idea that it is either yes, there's an affirmative defense or no, there's not really doesn't show what the whole picture looks like. Um, you know, there, there are several different variants of the test and how states have implemented and how states use those tests in determining how they're going to deal with mental illness. And Kansas has taken one approach among the, uh, the, the, the many. Yeah, the, I think an assistant for the Solicitor General uh, added um, her argument here on, on Monday along those lines that the court could be stepping its way into a, a thorny problem here by saying, okay, the Constitution mandates um, an affirmative insanity defense because then the next question, as you suggest, is difficult to resolve. What exactly is that insanity defense that the Constitution mandates as there's many, many different ways the states have gone about prescribing it. One other thing that came up from, I think, both the chief and Samuel Alito was the fact that the uh, petitioner here um, seems debatable whether or not the insanity defense would have actually helped him out or not. Both the chief and uh, Justice Alito seemed to suggest that you know the the killings here, which are you know undeniably gruesome and terrible, were committed by someone that seemed to be sort of thinking rationally and creating uh, thinking strategically about who he wanted to kill and and who not. And so that seems to add a bit of an element here that the court would seem to not want to make a broad rule that wouldn't even necessarily help the petitioner before it. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I think that point is exactly right. And I think even Justice Kagan uh, agreed on this point when uh, during the petitioner's uh, opening argument, you know, she, she says, you know, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think you can say this, counselor, but I can. And I don't think in any of these 46 states uh, that your client would be found insane. And so I think that you have justices, uh, you know, Justice Kagan and then the chief and, and Justice Alito all, all recognizing that this may not be um, what, what some would think is a uh, paradigmatic example of uh, so, someone who, who is insane as we think about it in applying the insanity defense. And that point, I think, just goes uh, to, to bring home the point of how important it is to allow states uh, the ability to determine how they're going to deal with uh, mental illness and criminal defendants. And it's particularly important in a context like this, that is a, a domestic violence context, to make sure that states have the flexibility to assess, punish, and incapacitate criminal defendants who allege that their heinous crimes were the result of some temporary insanity rather than acknowledging their culpability. Uh, Brad Hubbard of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
Before moving to our second case of the episode, let me first remind you that our verdicts and settlements publication issues every Friday. It includes major trial court-level dispositions from around the state. The section helps attorneys evaluate claims they may be bringing, but it can also help you publicize your results. So if you've got one you'd like to include in that weekly publication, be it a summary judgment grant, an arbitration confirmation, a jury verdict, a settlement, let us know by going to www.dailyjournal.com forward slash V and S. That's V and S spelled out, no ampersand. Okay, Evangelisto Ramos was convicted by a Louisiana jury of second degree murder, though two jurors voted for acquittal. He contends on appeal that the Constitution guarantees defendants the right to a unanimous jury. Though the Sixth Amendment provides for a jury trial, it doesn't specifically mention unanimity. The Supreme Court once previously dealt with this question in a case called Apodaca versus Oregon, but was splintered in its holding. A plurality of four justices said the Sixth Amendment did not guarantee a unanimous jury. Justice Powell added a fifth vote to determine the result, saying that though it did require unanimity in federal trials, the guarantee didn't bind state courts, like the one at question there. Four other justices said unanimity was required in both federal and state courts. The muddy result leaves the current court with a bit of a mess as to how to handle the present appeal, though most all states, including now Louisiana, do require unanimous juries. There have been several thousand convictions reached notwithstanding dissenting votes in Louisiana and Oregon, where the law remains such that convictions can be rendered without unanimity. We hear now from Louisiana Solicitor General Elizabeth Merle, who gave argument in support of her state's conviction against Ramos in October. Solicitor General Merle, Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. We'll dive right in here. Why, in, in the view of Louisiana, is it the case that the Sixth Amendment does not require a unanimous jury to convict a criminal defendant? So the argument that we made, and I think the, the correct answer, is that the text structure and the history of the Constitution, and particularly the Sixth Amendment, do not require unanimous jury verdicts. And because of the lack of any real concentrated evaluation of the history until you get to Apodaca or really until you get to kind of a sequence of opinions in Duncan and Williams and Apodaca, there never really was a deep dive into that history. Then you get Apodaca and it creates this plurality opinion on that particular issue. And, you know, so you have a precedent that is still a plurality opinion, but we don't address the issue for another 50 years. So, I mean, I think that when the court moves its, the needle on, on incorporation theory, then it puts more pressure on that plurality opinion. And now that's why our argument at, um, in this case was if you are going to change the legal foundation and opinion, then you need to go back and get the history right. Just to pull out a, a couple of things there, in terms of the, the, the textual argument, um, that mm-hmm. does seem like a pretty strong case to a pretty strong argument on on your side that the you know the text of the constitution requires um you know a right to a jury trial but nor in the text does it require unanimity i suppose you know one counter argument to that idea was raised at argument i think by justice ginsburg that the idea mm-hmm. of a unanimous jury is sort of baked in there because it was such a common ubiquitous practice at common law that even if the constitution didn't spell it out that uh, it was still part of part of the deal um what's the sort of the response to that well, there were two responses to that. One is, you know, this, the, the draft amendment by James Madison did include unanimity and it went into conference and there were, you know, some, some changes made. All of the changes ultimately were rejected, but there are some very significant words that were retained. So I think from a textual standpoint, from an historical standpoint, there was a deliberate decision that was made to retain certain words like impartial. 
like speedy and public, and there was a d- deliberate decision made to exclude unanimity. There's a reason for that that is explained, I think, by the historical debate that further, I think, illuminates why the the framers decided to take that word out. And it was because the states were doing different, they had a history of doing different things with jury trial, not just with the votes, but also with the number of jurors. And so there was a lot of different practices going on in the state. The fact that states had put this into their state constitutions also shows that it was a known issue. So, you know, I think that from a drafting standpoint, the history, in my view, supports our interpretation and not the interpretation that it was simply some kind of streamlining. You mentioned the case Apodaca, um, where the Supreme Court previously dealt with with this question, and it's an interesting case here because it's it's one that both sides seem to have some discomfort with. As, as I understand it, there are four votes in that ruling for the proposition that the Sixth Amendment does not, uh, as you're saying, require a unanimous jury, and I believe there are four saying that it that it does, and then I think there is one saying that it it, it does require unanimous juries, but only at at federal trials, not at, at state trials, but that sort of adds up to five votes saying there's a unanimous jury requirement in the the Sixth Amendment. So how, in your view, do you, do you treat this, the shadow of Apodaca here? Well, I think Justice Powell's kind of statement that it was required in federal trials really didn't have a lot of, it didn't have a lot of depth to it. Like, we don't know why he thought that. I mean, we know that there are, there's a history of cases saying that unanimity is required in federal trials. So as a practical matter, that's the practice. That was the practice. It was part of Rule 31 at the time. And, and so it had always been the practice in federal courts, and nobody disputed that. Whether it was constitutionally required to be, employed in federal courts, I don't really know what Justice Powell thought about that. I, I think that he just made the statement that it had been required in federal courts. That's a true statement. You know, our position is that once you really do that examination, and once the court did that examination in Williams, you really can't separate those two things, the, the, the number 12 and the historical evolution of the number 12 from unanimity because it's virtually the same history in common law. I mean, whenever you look at Blackstone and you look at Hale and you look at Coke and you look at these historical sources from English common law, nobody disputes that that's what, that was the rule at English common law or that it was eventually, as a practical matter, imported into federal, the federal court system. But I don't think the history really of the Sixth Amendment is any different. So it kind of left us with a weird, you know, opinion from Justice Powell that we don't really know exactly what he meant. He moved, he shifted from that to a functional approach, which doesn't really seem to be based in the history or the text of the Constitution itself. I think at the end of the day, Apodaca was the right result, and I think it was correct for the same reasons that were the court delved more deeply into in Williams. Okay. Um, there's one other, other issue I wanted to bring up is the, the reliance issues that you, you put forward at, at argument and, and also mentioned in briefs by, by Oregon, um, who follows a, a, a similar criminal procedure practice of not requiring unanimous juries. I suppose what's the, the thrust of, of that 
reliance argument, just that the, the state has sort of been operating under the assumption for several decades that its convictions are, are constitutionally proper. And if it's not the case, there are several thousand, tens of thousands potentially that have to be revisited. Is that the argument? Yeah, that's in a nutshell. I mean, I think we made the point that there are 32,000 people that are serving time for serious serious crimes and that the, the criminal defense attorneys have already argued in an amicus brief that the jury instructions, I mean, there's a lot of things that are baked into the jury trial. And, and so they're going to make the argument that everyone has an appeal. And that doesn't mean that everybody wins their appeal, obviously. I mean, the, the Supreme Court, if they rule against us on the Sixth Amendment argument, then it opens the door to a whole wide number of appeals. Um, I think it undermines the foundations of the, the number 12 and um, indictment by information and not and not exclusively by grand jury because these, it has the same historical foundation. So not only do we end up with a whole, thousands of appeals because everyone who went to trial got the same jury instructions, but we also potentially get appeals for those people who had plea bargains based on their alleged, you know, fear of facing a non-unanimous jury. So I don't, I don't know that everybody. I would hope that everybody doesn't win because that's going to just crush our system. But it does, and it, I think that just a lot that number of people having a right to bring an appeal um, or try and get an appeal heard on this issue is also potentially crippling. That's why we were saying, look, you need to get, given where the court has moved on incorporation theory, the historical precedent on this issue that's been settled for 50 years, the fact that we've relied on it for 50 years and had a constitutional convention where we upped the vote in express reliance on the court's declaration that it was constitutional, you need to get this right. I mean, the history, we should get the history and the text right. I don't think it requires unanimity, even if we all at this point might agree that it's a good policy. Maybe just, just one last one. You mentioned a couple of times the sort of the traditional practice of having 12 jurors. Also, the argument you noted that, uh, you know, smaller numbers of jurors have, have been permissible. And so here you're talking about 10 jurors convicting with two not attended mm-hmm. to decision. And, and you could also have juries that are smaller, say six people convicting, that's fewer than, than 10. So um, what, what's, I guess, the, the argument there and the importance of the, the, the number 12 or, or a smaller number? So Williams v. Florida was the case that tested whether a six-man jury with, with unanimity was permissible under the Sixth Amendment. And the court said that it was because it found that 12 was a historical accident. I think that, you know, it has a similar evolutionary history as unanimity, but that's why I kind of said I wouldn't have characterized it as an accident when Justice Ginsburg asked that question. But I, I think that what Justice, the Chief Justice and Justice Ginsburg both were kind of struggling or at least querying me about and querying my friend Mr. Fisher about was how do you really distinguish that? Because Florida has a rule that permits a six-man jury for all felonies below the level of capital. And so you would have six people, whereas we have a 12-man jury, which requires 10 to agree to have a verdict. So in our system, it's still 10 people who have to agree. In Florida's system, it's only six people who have to agree. 
I don't really see how that's fundamentally different, although the argument that my friend Mr. Fisher makes is that there's a difference in the deliberations. I, I still don't really see how that's a functional difference when you have 10 people that you have to convict here. I mean, you have to convince here, and in Florida, you only have to convince six for the same crime. We'll, we'll certainly find out how this case turns out in just a, a few months, but we'll leave it there for now. Elizabeth Morell, Sister General of Louisiana, thanks very much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Michael Sachs is a professor of law at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University. He filed an amicus brief on the other side of this case, arguing mainly that unanimous juries are a much better way to reach criminal convictions as they tend to cause greater and more robust deliberation and can therefore help avoid errors and give the public more confidence in their verdicts. He joins me now. Professor, thanks for being here. Hello. Let's go ahead and, and dive into the, the brief that you're a part of in this case. It has a sort of an empirical focus about uh, the ways in which requiring a uh, unanimous jury to convict defendants sort of best uh, helps embody the, the guarantees of the Constitution and, and the Sixth Amendment. I suppose what are the ways in which a uh, unanimous jury, I guess, changes the way that uh, ultimate piece of the criminal justice system uh, tends to, to operate the, the jury um, verdict rendering? Well, if I can back up slightly before I answer that question, the one might say that this is entirely a matter of what does the Constitution require or permit or is silent on. And the, and the reason empirical research comes in on these cases, when I say these cases, I mean uh, a lot of jury cases. It's clearest in the jury size cases where the Constitution doesn't say the jury should consist of 12 people. And so when the Supreme Court encountered that, and they encountered that within two years of their their earlier decision on whether unanimity was required, the Supreme Court's logic was that we know that 12-person unanimous juries are constitutional. And then the question becomes, are you getting less of a jury if you get a six-person jury? Are you getting less of a jury if you get a non-unanimous jury? So they used the 12-person unanimous jury as the benchmark, and they said that if functionally the jury, a non-unanimous jury or a six-person jury, is functionally equivalent to the gold standard then you're getting you're getting the jury that the Constitution promised you. So that that's kind of what sets the stage for looking at these functional features of the jury. If the jury isn't going to if a non-unanimous jury isn't going to make as good a decision, then you're not getting the jury that the Constitution promised. So with that as kind of setting the stage for what these empirical features are, then I'd, I'd like to start answering that by saying it's almost obvious that uh, if a conviction cannot be achieved without my vote, then my vote has a lot of power. And that what I say to my fellow jurors is something they have to listen to and have to deal with. But if my vote is one they do not need, 
they can get their conviction without it. So let's say 10 out of 12 votes are required, and I and someone else are dissenting. Our votes and our voice really have no power at all because we are superfluous. You don't even have to do a study to figure that out. And that turns out to be one of the things that does happen. In the 1972 case, Apodaca versus Oregon and Johnson versus Louisiana, the Supreme Court said that it was their belief that jurors in the majority would not stop listening to the dissenters. They wouldn't stop listening to them just because the majority had enough votes to end the deliberation. But it turns out from studies of juries, when the requisite majority is reached, the jury does go on discussing it for a little while. But as soon as it gets frustrating, someone points out that this is now an academic discussion, that we've got our 10 votes. We can go on talking to the two dissenters or we can include the deliberation and conclude the trial. One can imagine towards the end of a criminal trial, in particular one that may have lasted for a long period of time, if you only need, say, nine or ten votes out of twelve and you get to go home and finish your your jury service, that would seem to be Mm -hmm. a fairly good option as opposed to trying to bring the other two folks around. And what what other um, findings have shown that uh, unanimous verdicts tend to function more in a way that Constitution um, you think would, would want? Studies have found that in a quorum jury, the normal inequity of discussion, what I mean is some people talk more and some people talk less for reasons that are not entirely obvious. When you compare unanimous rule juries to quorum rule juries, that inequity is even greater. The jurors who talk a lot talk even more, and the jurors who talk uh, less talk even less. So you get less equal participation among the jurors. I already mentioned the finding that once the requisite consensus is reached, there isn't serious, meaningful discussion that leads to any vote changes, at least no vote changes where the majority loses its majority. Among benefits, and a lot of these, I think people are not going to say, oh, that is a surprising finding. Uh, So when I tell you that unanimous juries have the benefit uh, that they deliberate for a longer time, I think people will say, well, that's pretty obvious that they would have to because now you need the 11th vote and you need the 12th vote, and that's going to require more discussion and debate. The facts that are discussed, these studies have found, uh, that key facts are discussed more thoroughly. Again, if you if the only way you're going to convince every single person in that room, that will take more discussion when you've got to convince 12 people than when you have to convince only 10 people. There's another uh, feature is uh, Reed Hasty and his uh, colleagues uh, noticed that juries seem to follow one of two major 
strategies in their deliberation. They were either evidence-driven or they were verdict-driven. Evidence-driven juries are juries that sift through the evidence with an eye to understanding the facts and then trying to see how those facts uh, match up with a particular verdict. Verdict-driven juries are more interested in head counting, vote counting. So a very verdict-driven jury might start off its deliberation. Uh, someone will suggest, why don't we take a straw vote to see where people are at? And once they do that, then it becomes a battle of numbers. And it's how are we going to get an additional number? Evidence-driven jurors spend more time sifting through the, the evidence before they start taking votes. And the unanimous juries tend to go the evidence-driven route more than the non-unanimous juries. The non-unanimous juries are more likely to go the verdict-driven route. It might be because it has been made salient for them that a certain number less than 12 is what is needed. Another factor is the confidence that the jury has in its own verdict. When a jury has reached a unanimous verdict, the jurors feel more confident that they reached the correct result. When they have, you know, if you have a verdict where 10 people are saying guilty and two people are saying, I'm not convinced, I have problems with this and, I'm, and I'll tell you my problems if you'll stay here and listen, when the trial ends in that state and a conviction is rendered with that split, not only do the two dissenters feel that uh, they're not as confident that there was a correct decision reached, but even the majority is not as sure of itself in the non-unanimous cases as in the unanimous ones. And there's, there's at least one study which inquires into the public perception of unanimous and non-unanimous verdicts, and that tracks the same way. And again, I think that one is strikes me as awfully commonsensical, that if you have not convinced everybody beyond a reasonable doubt, then at the end of the day, how can you say you have a verdict that reflects a belief in the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? You have some individuals who did have a reasonable doubt. And now the Supreme Court has addressed that uh, in the past by saying that the reasonable doubt instruction is directed at individuals and the vote is a separate matter. That may be the legal technical justification for allowing non-unanimous verdicts, but it shouldn't be surprising that both the public and the participants, that is the jurors, uh, are not as sure of themselves when there were dissenters. And speaking of correct verdicts, let's say certain facts lead to a conclusion that the defendant should be convicted of first-degree murder, or the facts support second-degree murder, or the facts support manslaughter. So that as a, as a legal matter, uh, if you understand the judge's instructions, and you understand what the facts are that have been placed in front of you, 
there is a more or less correct verdict to be chosen. And what some of the research has found is that the unanimous juries are more likely to arrive at the correct legal verdict in light of the facts in front of them. And that is less true of the um, non-unanimous juries. Even perhaps stipulating that unanimous juries might reach better decisions and, and more correct outcomes, get it right essentially more often. You, know, the, you mentioned that Supreme Court holding in uh, Apodaca where an admittedly, I think, splintered majority or plurality plus concurrence mm-hmm. held that um, the Constitution doesn't mandate unanimous jury. So even if they might be better, they're not constitutionally required. I suppose what's the best way to think about how that case shadows over the current one? It did come up certainly at argument and in one lens it was looked at through is that, you know, the court has been cautious and has certainly been um, argued at with regard to how it should treat prior precedent and how it should, you know, adhere to stare decisis often and and not uh, decide um, without do deliberation to um, depart from previous precedent. So that precedent does exist. I guess what's the best way for uh, the court to uh, regard it and and come down on the side that that you're arguing for? Well, if you go through Apodaca, some of these empirical issues arise. And in that case, which was 1972, there was probably zero or close to zero research on how decision-making groups behave when when different decision rules are imposed on them, like majority, supermajority versus unanimous. So the Supreme Court justices speculated uh, on how the jurors would behave. And I gave one example, which was the, the dissenters suggested that this was basically going to cut the, the minority and I don't necessarily mean a racial minority, I mean an attitudinal minority or a belief minority on the jury, that those people are going to be basically excluded from the deliberation. And the majority said, oh, no, they won't. Uh, The jurors are aware of the serious responsibility they have, and they will hear out every reasonable argument that anyone wants to make and address it and deal with it and that turns out not to be the case. So I think, let's say in 1972, we didn't know nearly as much about how juries actually behave under different decision rules. Now we do have a body of research that tells us more now than we knew then. So I think if the, if the justices, if we could take the justices who were on the court in 1972 and move them to the present day and say to them, you obviously had concerns about the jury's accuracy, its openness to rich, full, vigorous debate, and you guessed at how they would handle that. Uh, here, we now have a body of research. We'll show it to you. Does this change your mind? I'd like to think that uh, serious, sincere justices from 1972 would look at that research and say, uh, oops, uh, our guesses were wrong on a number of important points, and that ought to lead us 
to conclude that unanimity is a more important feature of the jury than we thought it was. In terms of the balance between the national and state governments when it comes to criminal prosecutions, by and large, the federal government lets states deal with their own criminal law and, and procedure to find, you know, elements of um, crimes within the state's borders and certainly states handle almost all the criminal trials that go on within their borders. You know, this is something that was mentioned by Justice Ginsburg that that would sort of counsel against the Supreme Court saying this is the way you have to have your juries behave. So what's the main counterargument against that notion that, um, you know, ideas of federalism would suggest the court maybe should be cautious of weighing in here? I'm trying to remember what case it was. I think not. Uh, I think within the last year, Justice Gorsuch laughed at some debate over whether some provision of the Bill of Rights was incorporated against the states. Uh, his joke was, "What you mean by this point in history, we haven't applied all of them against the states?" You know, when when our Constitution was first written. It was thought that the Bill of Rights only restrained the federal government. And over time, well, especially after the 14th Amendment, and maybe only after the 14th Amendment, it started being applied. The federal Constitution started to impose requirements on the states as well. So I think this would just be a continuation of that process. To the extent that the Sixth Amendment has not uh, been fully applied to the states. This is just one baby step further along that path. Yeah, I think that was the uh, Tim's versus Indiana case relating to the Eighth Amendment excessive fines clause, and the court, of course, eventually oh, yes. did say yes, that <laughs> right. clause does apply against the states. So it does seem like each time the question comes up, yeah. is this uh, piece of the Bill of Rights incorporated? The answer has been yes. Yeah. So you must know all of those cases. <laughs> I don't profess to that, you address I, I got that one. Okay, well, we can go ahead and leave it there for now. I really appreciate your time, Professor Michael Sachs from Sandra Day O'Connor uh, College of Law at Arizona State University. Thanks a lot for being on our podcast. I appreciate it. You're very welcome. last case we'll consider today is Mathena v. Malvo, which will help define the current doctrine as to when juveniles may receive life without parole sentences. Lee Boyd Malvo received such a sentence for his role in the D.C. sniper killings. Our next guest, John Mills of Phillips Black in Oakland, argued in an amicus brief that recent Supreme Court holdings in Miller v. Alabama and Montgomery v. Louisiana make it so that only in very rare instances may juveniles receive life without parole sentences. Keep in mind, John will sometimes refer to these sentences by an acronym, LWOP or LWOP. He says courts, per those recent SCOTUS holdings, must make deliberate, reasoned decisions over whether a juvenile offender before them is entirely without hope of rehabilitation. Because the Virginia court at issue didn't make such a determination, Mill says Malvo should receive another sentencing hearing. He joins me now. John, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. This uh, this case, Mathena versus Malvo, it uh, centers around... A, a couple of pretty recent Supreme Court cases dealing with uh, life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders. And, and the seminal case there, Miller v. Alabama from 2012, is is really the, the core um, of this case and, and what that previous ruling means and what it provides for. So I guess uh, walk me through how your amicus brief describes that Miller ruling and, uh, and what it, um, protections it provides for juvenile offenders. 
Thank you. I'd be happy to do that. So Miller versus Alabama announced, I would say, a couple of rules that are relevant here. First, it held that all but the rare juvenile who's irreparably corrupt is excluded. All but the rare juveniles who's irreparably corrupt are excluded from the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. That rule is premised on what the Supreme Court has called the common sense understanding that every parent knows that juveniles are uniquely vulnerable, uniquely vulnerable to their peers, to their circumstances, and to the adults in their lives. And it's also premised on the recognition that juveniles almost always have the capacity for rehabilitation. So the first rule is that all but the aberrational juvenile who lacks these characteristics is exempt from the punishment of life without the possibility of parole. Of course, Miller has a second part, what the Supreme Court has called a procedural component. And because the Supreme Court was reviewing a state case in Miller versus Alabama, concerns about comedy and federalism meant that it did not impose a formal fact-finding requirement on irreparable corruption. But the court did require senators to consider whether to senators considering whether to impose life without the possibility of parole to weigh certain characteristics of the juvenile. Um, so characteristics like whether they were under the pressure of others, whether they exhibited a capacity for change, and so on. So the first rule is, to use a term of art from habeas cases, a substantive rule, which is what makes it retroactive. Most new rules of constitutional law are not retroactive, meaning those whose direct appeal is over cannot invoke them, but substantive rules are. And every substantive rule so far recognized by the United States Supreme Court considers are concerns either a class of offenders or a category of conduct. So, for example, not being able to execute the intellectually disabled, that's a class of offender. Not being able to be punished for flag burning, that's a category of conduct. These are substantive constitutional rules. Um, in Montgomery versus Louisiana, the court held that Miller's rule was substantive. Miller excludes most juveniles as a class from the punishment of life without the possibility of parole. That's why it's retroactive. That's the rationale offered Montgomery, and that's consistent with every other substantive rule recognized by the Supreme Court. Evan Miller from Miller versus Alabama was serving a mandatory sentence of LWAP, and the warden in Methina versus Malvo has repeatedly pointed out literally the number of times the U.S. Supreme Court in Miller used the word mandatory and the times that, um, in which the Supreme Court directed its ire at mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole. But with new substantive rules, the process used to impose the illegal sentence doesn't matter. That is, whether the sentence is mandatory or not, if the juvenile is in the protected class, then the sentence is unconstitutional. Because most juveniles, as a class, are exempt from LWAP, it makes sense to give them a chance at resentencing. So they, like people convicted of flag burning or the intellectually disabled who are under a sentence of death, may be constitutionally exempt from the sentence they're serving. For that reason, it's only fair to give all juveniles serving life without the possibility of parole an opportunity to demonstrate their sentence is illegal in light of Miller. That was going to be my, my next question was the, the opposing side's conception of, of Miller's rule, because it sounds like there's some agreement in this case on the idea that Miller applies retroactively, though some disagreement on some finer points of that. But largely, there seems to be agreement that Montgomery said Miller applies retroactively. But the opposing papers say Miller only applies, as as you said, where there's 
a mandatory life without parole sentencing scheme. And so in instances where, and we'll get sort of into more of this in just a second, there was some discretion that was allowed, say, for the sentencing judge or the jury, or it wasn't absolutely required by written down in the book's law that the offender had to be sentenced to life without parole, that Miller wouldn't apply at all. Um, so you're saying it sounds more like Miller, in your view, just bars life without parole sentences for juveniles kind of altogether, or at least without Juven- a, a consideration for whether or not they were in the class, they couldn't be rehabilitated. For nearly all juveniles, that's right. And so that's, that is the... Uh, position that I, that we've taken, this position, of course, that Mr. Malvo uh, has taken, and it's the position taken by virtually every court to consider the question after Montgomery was decided. Um, it's really only two states that I'm aware of, Indiana and Virginia, who've reached the opposite uh, conclusion after, after Montgomery. Now, I, the warden has said that uh, Mr. Malvo's sentence was discretionary. Uh, that's, I think that's subject to some criticism, uh, which is something we raised in our brief. Uh, but before we even get to that, I would say that that should be irrelevant. That if, if Miller provides a substantive protection for a class of juveniles, and we know that it does in light of Montgomery, then that protection applies regardless of the process used to impose the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Um, but, you know, to get to the question about uh, whether or not Virginia's sentencing scheme is, in fact, mandatory, the difference there hinges on um, a little and perhaps never used statute to suspend sentences. So um, after Mr. Mahavo's sentence was imposed, the Virginia Supreme Court explained that sentencing judges have the ability to suspend a sentence. We say that that statute is inadequate to make Mr. Uh, Malvo's sentence something less than mandatory for two reasons. First of all, in Mr. Malvo's case itself, everybody agreed that there was only one sentence available, the sentence that was imposed by the jury. Um, and so as, as the sentencing scheme was applied to Mr. Malvo himself, it was mandatory. Secondly, uh, Miller requires that the sentencer consider certain factors before imposing such a sentence. Um, and the sentencing scheme Mr. Malvo was sentenced under, the jury was the one making the sentencing decision. The jury was the one that received the information about the mitigating aspects of Mr. Uh, Mr. Malvo's youth. It was not the judge at the sentencing proceeding where he imposed the sentence recommended by the jury. And so in that sentence imposition, where we know only after the fact the judge could have suspended the sentence, there was no discussion about the mitigating aspects of youth uh, that, that Miller required. And the judge, the prosecutor, and uh, Mr. Malvo's counsel all very much seemed to be on the same page that uh, there was one sentence available, the sentence recommended by the jury. Um, so uh, was there some capacity to impose a sentence other than life without the possibility of parole? Maybe, although no one seemed to know it 
at the time of Mr. Malvo's Senate. Um, I just wanted to pull in for one second the the brief from the U.S. Solicitor General. To the extent that you're you know, familiar with how their arguments go, it, it, it sounds like they're less focused on the latter point. We've been talking about whether or not this, in fact, was a mandatory or discretionary sentence, but they're they're still siding with, with the warden here. I guess, what's the thrust of the, the U.S. government's argument? The U.S. government has been somewhat candid in that they're saying that in order to reach the prefer their preferred outcome, in order uh, for Mr. Malvo not to be able to receive Miller relief, the court needs to completely redo its analysis in Montgomery. Uh, the uh, the Solicitor General has said that um, that substantive that rules that apply retroactively, substantive rules, are rules that that create a substantial risk that if they don't apply retroactively, um, individuals will uh, receive unconstitutional sentences. The problem with that formulation is that it is at odds with literally every a U.S. Supreme Court case discussing what substantive rules are and how substantive rules work, um, including Montgomery versus Louisiana itself. Uh, the, it, the, neither the warden nor the U.S. government makes any attempt to um, explain how Atkins versus Virginia's bar on executing the intellectually disabled fits within that, how, how the right to have a jury determine uh, whether or not you're eligible for a death sentence doesn't fit within that. Uh, these are like key retroactivity cases that neither neither the warden nor the U.S. government is able to make sense of in light of their proposed rule. And so in many ways, Mr. Malvo's request, as well as the request of um, the Meekian support, is to stick with the reasoning of Montgomery, stick with the framework that the court has used um, since 1987 and in Teague versus Lane and stick with the understanding of what substantive rules are. Substantive rules apply to classes of offenders and categories of conduct. Um, there's never been a rule declared re- retroactive to collateral review because it created a substantial risk of unconstitutional sentence. No matter the process, when it comes to substantive rules, the, if a sentence is unconstitutional, you could have an opportunity to challenge it in collateral review. Okay. Just one last one. You know, the cases that we've been speaking about, Miller and Montgomery, represent something of a, um, a, a winning streak here over the past 10 years for juvenile offenders at the Supreme Court. Of course, those two cases come down with Justice Kennedy on the court who has now departed. And in them, I think one's a 5-4, one's a 6-3. You have dissenters like Chief Justice Roberts, I think, in, in Mil- uh, Miller versus Alabama, uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, Justice Alito. So uh, do you have any sense of you know whether the, the trend line of those two cases might continue with this one, or do you think there's a, a chance the court might um, sort of come down on, on, on the other side of, of this issue here this term? As you point out, the court has changed a great deal since Montgomery versus Louisiana and since Miller versus Alabama. Uh, and interestingly, Chief Justice Roberts was a dissenter in Miller, but he was in the majority in Montgomery. So a lot of people who are following this case closely have been keeping their eyes on him. Uh, and we, of course, don't have much of a sense of how either uh, Justice Gorsuch or Justice Kavanaugh might vote in this case. And I'm hesitant to try to speculate about that taking a step back on sort of the trend lines on 
the imposition of life without the possibility of parole on juveniles, I would say that the U.S. Supreme Court is becoming less and less relevant uh, to that question. Uh, as I mentioned before, virtually every state other than Virginia and Indiana have concluded that Miller reaches discretionary and mandatory sentences alike. And more importantly, legislatures are rapidly adopting reforms that will give juveniles an opportunity to demonstrate that they have been re- rehabilitated and should be release, released. And significantly in places like Philadelphia, where juvenile life without the possibility of parole used to be very common, new uh, prosecutors have been elected that no longer seek that sentence. So we as a society are leaving these sentences behind. And um, if the court rules against uh, Mr. Malvo, I think one of the tragedies in this case is that there will be a handful of people and a handful of states that will be serving sentences that no longer reflect our country's values. Uh, John Mills, Principal Attorney with Phillips Black in Oakland. Thanks very much for your time. really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Last guest is Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher, who also filed an amicus brief in Mathena v. Malvo. In his view, the holding of Miller v. Alabama is narrower and really only forbids sentencing structures that mandate absolutely life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders. It says Virginia's structure allowed for some discretion on the part of the judge and the ability to suspend Malvo's sentence if the judge found it in the interest of justice. On that, Fisher says Malvo's sentence wasn't genuinely mandatory. Solicitor General Fisher, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, so to start off, could you describe to me, I guess, the overall interest that you and your companion states uh, bring here to uh, the case and uh, the, the purpose for submitting this amicus brief? In general, states have uh, a very strong interest in the finality of criminal convictions. Uh, that's in, in, a, in a general matter. And anytime the lower courts try to expand a Supreme Court ruling, both as to substance and to, as to retroactivity, uh, that can upset what we had thought were settled convictions. And so that uh, interest in finality is something we take very seriously. Beyond that, I think the, the Fourth Circuit's decision in this case does tread into areas that the Supreme Court has said really are up to the states uh, as uh, sovereign entities, which is to say the management of their criminal justice systems and the rules by which their courts administer justice and carry out uh, sentencing. So we're very concerned that here the Constitution is being used in a way to to uh, trench upon what really is a matter of state authority in terms of how sentencing is to be carried out. At the the heart of this case seems to be a, a pretty core disagreement as to what the Supreme Court has said about how much um, the Eighth Amendment does impact the the sentencing regimes that states can uh, can apply when we're talking about felonies committed by juvenile offenders. In in your view and in the view of the brief you submitted, what exactly have these two recent cases that are essentially at issue here, Miller v. Alabama, Montgomery v. Louisiana, what what do they and what did the Supreme Court in them prescribe in terms of Eighth Amendment requirements for for state sentencing regimes for, for juvenile offenders? Well, the way we view Miller is that it's really just about mandatory life without parole sentences uh, for juveniles. doesn't speak to sentencing schemes where trial courts would consider a variety of factors in sentencing and where the the life without parole sentence could be something that is arrived at after a balance of of 
various relevant factors, including the youth of the offender, inevitably. You know, the uh, uh, Montgomery case then came along after that and said that that was a substantive rule that would apply retroactively, which, okay, that's fine. They've, they've held that. And, and as far as mandatory sentences go, um, you know, that's, that's an understandable outcome. But the Fourth Circuit has said, well, in fact, Montgomery took Miller one step further and essentially required uh, a specific type of finding before a trial court can sentence a juvenile to life without parole. Essentially, that, that the trial court would have to find that there's this, you know, incorrigibility that uh, goes along with the, uh, the nature of the offender uh, specifically. And in our view, that's not something that's required by either Miller or Montgomery and indeed expands on the substantive Miller rule and then applies it retroactively using Montgomery, which is, which is unheard of. So we think the court here needs to, to re-articulate what it held in Miller and, and to say that really Miller is only about uh, mandatory life without parole sentences, not those that are arrived at based on a balance of factors. One thing you also bring up about those two cases is that uh, they included some some pretty strong dissents from, I think, four justices in one and, and three in another. Um, so to some extent, uh, your brief hints that those decisions might have not necessarily even come down the right way in terms of, I guess, the eighth argument requirements. I, that's obviously not the argument you're making that those cases were incorrect, but there seems to at least be a hint in there that if those were questionable expansions that the court shouldn't be inclined to go any any further. Am I reading that sort of fairly? Yeah, I think there's a lot of controversy really over um, the court's use of proportionality as the measuring stick for cruel and unusual punishment. I think there's a pretty strong originalist argument that cruel and unusual punishment really just refers to the method of of punishment so that nothing kind of new and creative that wasn't in existence at common law could be used in a criminal sentence, that it's not really about weighing in some very abstract sense uh, whether a sentence is, is proportionate. So given those weaknesses in this whole line of cases, uh, our, our view is that really it's not appropriate to expand it even further into areas where uh, the court hasn't seen fit to go before, um, especially it's not appropriate for a lower court to do that, which is what we think the Fourth Circuit did here. So uh, we're not urging a rollback or, of, of Miller and Montgomery. We're, we're simply saying, look, you've, you've got some weaknesses in that doctrine already. There's really no grounds for expanding it even further. And then the last piece I wanted to unpack here is, is the disagreement over just how discretionary or mandatory the sentencing regime is a question here. Because if you, you know, stipulate that uh, Miller v. Alabama does outlaw mandatory life without parole sentences for juvenile offenders, and then the rest of that argument must be that this is not a mandatory sentence. But, uh, you know, to some extent, it can be described in ways that seem at least close to mandatory. You know, it it sounds like the jury was presented with sort of two options, either an execution, capital sentence, or a life without parole sentence. And then I suppose the discretion comes in there after where the sentence is passed over to the judge to sort of uh, finalize. Um, but at least to the jury, it seemed like there wasn't a whole lot of discretion. And um, the opposing papers have described not a lot sort of spoken about at the, the hearing before the judge uh, sort of confirming the sentence. So I guess where is the the discretion here in the sentence? Well, we haven't really staked out a position on exactly how Vir- what Virginia does, you know, is, is mandatory or not. I think the important part for us is that whenever a court and you know a, a sentencing body essentially is uh, has some ability to decide for or against 
life without parole, and the youth of the offender can be called to the deciding uh, entity's attention. It's something they can factor in that essentially that satisfies uh, the standard that the Supreme Court set forth in Miller, um, because it's inherently part of the consideration of all factors that when when you know, whether it's the jury or the judge knows of the uh, youth of the of the offender that uh, that is going to factor into the analysis all the limitations that come with youth all of the uh, ameliorating uh, circumstances that come with it um, are are inherently going to be part of that consideration and so that I think it also really undermines the idea that there need to be needs to be some sort of magic words type finding which is what essentially the Fourth Circuit required here and, and in our view it's it's uh, it needs not it shouldn't really be about that sort of formalistic uh, incantation of the right words, but the, the inherent substance of of considering youth and whenever uh, there's a choice to be made between um, life without parole and something less than that. Indiana Solicitor General Thomas Fisher, thanks very much for being on our podcast. All right, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Okay, that's a wrap for our program. Our third preview episode for October term 2019. I'd like to thank all my guests one more time, Rachel Von Cleve, Brad Hubbard, Elizabeth Merle, Michael Sachs, John Mills, and Thomas Fisher. Thanks also to my production staff here, principally Henrik Nilsson for a lot of editing work here. And thanks to you as well for tuning in. It's greatly appreciated. Don't forget that one hour of participatory CLA credit can be yours for having listened. Just go to dailyjournal.com to find it. I'm Brian Cardell. I'll see you for our next pre-episode. Good night.